You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you are receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about our church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to um, Redemption Hill Church. It's a privilege to worship with you all. It is it is. It is marvelous to see what God continues to do. I mean, honestly, whoever thought five, six, seven months ago that we'd still be meeting, right? A bunch of people move here, and it's crazy. People come in, and, and it's nuts. And it's, and it's awesome to step back every now and then and say, look what God is doing here. And look what he continues to do to build his, his church, so... Uh, it is indeed a privilege. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can open it up to the book of Galatians. Uh, we have been trekking through the book of Galatians, starting in chapter 1, verse 1, going all the way to chapter 6. And today we're in chapter 3. So you can go there, chapter 3, and we'll begin in verse 15. Excuse me. And again, these are God's words to us this morning from the book of Galatians. So the prayer is that God's word would impact our heart and our lives as we read and as we hear the sermon preached. So here's God's words to us, starting in verse 15, and we'll run it all the way to the end of the chapter. Now Paul's picking up up on a thought from that we talked about last week. He says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place by angels, by an intermediary, Now, an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law has been given that could give life, then righteousness would be indeed by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus all are sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we can admit that there is a lot in this text, and there's just a lot of text, right? And so the goal this morning is to kind of, in a sense, untangle what's going on. I think Paul is clear, but let's get some help here to see what Paul is actually trying to say. The question is, where is Paul leading us this morning? So let let me begin with this. Let me try to frame where we're headed with this. Have you ever made a promise that you cannot keep? And Paul talks about promises in today's text. Have you ever made a promise that you can't keep? Perhaps you made a promise and then in time you realized the promise wasn't worth making in the first place. If you've ever done an NCAA pool and had to put money into that, that might be the case. I'm not talking about me in particular, but nonetheless. Uh, Hopefully, because of integrity, you keep the promise regardless of the cost. And of course, people make promises that are not kept in the end, which speaks to what? Just lack of integrity. So I think it's safe to say that we've all been on the wrong end of a a broken promise. Uh, Here's another thought about why promises are made, at least in our culture, society. I'm not proficient with business or business management, but I learned this last week that many companies have something called a brand promise. A brand promise. This is completely new to me, so it was interesting to learn. A brand promise is a value or experience a customer's company can expect to receive every single time they interact with the company. Like for me, it's Chick-fil-A. Like when I go to Chick-fil-A, there's a certain expectation there. I know what I'm going to get. They've got this brand promise, at least for me, down to perfection, and the chicken's amazing, so I'm all in. They got me hooked. The more a company can deliver on that promise, the stronger the brand value in the mind of customers and employees. So just particular ways that promises are made in our culture or society. But we all know that people and companies can fail to deliver, even with the best intentions, on a promise from time to time. Not to knock on Chick-fil-A because I love them, but every, every now and then they get it wrong. They fail to deliver on the promise. If a company has people involved, then we all know broken promises can be expected, however minor or infrequent. Bottom line is this, sometimes when a promise is made, it does end up broken. Broken promises are a result of just living in a sinful and fallen world. In our text this morning, there is a thread that I want you to see woven from verse 15 to verse 29. And what we see this morning is that God keeps his promise, no matter the cost. God keeps his promise, no matter how often the customer rails against what God is offering. When God makes a promise, his divine integrity will see the promise through until the very end. So, from the Bible... We see how God fulfills this promise. That's what we're going to see today. We have this promise that gets fulfilled, and we'll see how the fulfillment of the promise, see what it looks like. So what are the results of God fulfilling his promise? If God makes a promise, you can rest assured there are dynamic ramifications included. So if you've been tracking with me, 
in the book of Galatians, I'm sure you've seen Paul build an argument one after another about the utter inability of the law to do several things. We have seen that the law cannot justify a person. That is to say, the law cannot make a person right before God. Your works cannot make you right before God. The law cannot give a person faith. We've read that. The law cannot provide the Holy Spirit. That was last week. So Paul is not dismissing the law. He is simply helping us to understand the place of the law in the Christian life. He isn't saying, hey guys, just ignore this. Don't read that part of the Bible. That's not what Paul's doing. He's helping us to read it well. And Paul wants to show us this morning how the law fits into God's plan to redeem his people through Jesus Christ with a promise. The question in view is found in verses 15 to 18. How does the law connect with the offspring of Abraham and the promises of God? Here's verse 15 again, and Paul gives us a clue. Continuing his thought from the previous passage, he says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. This, This human example is meant to inform us about the biblical reality that we've been seeing from the book of Genesis. Paul's leaning heavily into the book of Genesis, helping us to understand the place of the law. And as we have seen time and again, Paul is going to take us back there. The reason why we need to spend time in Genesis is because this human example that Paul is referencing, you know, this, here's an example, guys. This human example is actually given birth in Genesis 15. What is the example? What is this man-made covenant all about? Here's what Paul is getting at. Once you create a covenant uh, with another person, and the covenant has been agreed upon by both parties, right? You can't go back to what life was like previous to the covenant, right? So I'll I'll just say parenthetically, when, when church membership is introduced at Redemption Hill, Church, those who go forth in membership will be entering into a covenant with the entire church body. Essentially, agreements are going to be made with one another and with God. You can think about a covenant in contractual terms. Let's say you take out a mortgage um, with the bank in order to buy a home. You and the bank sign a contract saying that the bank will loan you X amount of dollars so that you can buy the home, but you need to pay the bank back within a certain amount of time and with an interest rate. A failure to follow through upon the agreed terms will result in consequence. Guess what? You might lose your home. This is a contract or, or covenant, which is the biblical language for us today, between these two parties. Um, you can think of the Mosaic Covenant, you may have heard that, which involves the law in this kind of contractual way. So what Paul is saying in verse 15 and leading us into to verse 17 is that God and Abraham entered into a covenant. But there's a huge difference between the way I've already described a covenant in like contractual terms and what God is doing actually with Abraham. Another way to think about it is with Moses 
conditional terms were made. If you do this, I will do this. In other words, follow the law and it will go well with you guys. But with Abraham, an unconditional promise was made. The backstory to what Paul is saying is found, like I said, in Genesis 15. So I want to spend a moment on the backstory. And one, I just find it completely fascinating, but it's helpful as we read Galatians 3. Genesis 15 describes for us how God asked Abraham, and at, the time, at this time he's called Abram, entered into a covenant with him. Here are the details. It says in Genesis 15 that the Lord came to Abraham in a dream, and in the dream, Abraham laments about not having a direct heir. Uh, in Abraham's case, he wanted a son who would inherit his possessions, his title, his legacy, things like that. But there is more. Uh, the Lord says, hey, I'm going to give you an heir. I'm making a promise with you. Direct, just with you, Abraham, I'm going to make a promise. You are going to get in air. God even tells Abraham to look up at the stars. He's like, hey, look up at the stars, Abraham. Now count them. Okay, point is you can't count them. That's how many descendants are going to come from this air. Now that's just got to be mind-blowing. Like if you're Abraham and you're like looking up at the sky and you're like, pardon me? You're going to do what? That many? After the dialogue between the Lord and Abraham, it is time to sign the contract, as it were. In verses 9 to 21 of Genesis 15, we read that God tells Abraham to uh, get a cow, <laughs> grab a goat, grab a ram, grab a pigeon, and a dove. He's not trying to develop a hobby farm here. Now, this does seem strange to us, but because it is strange does not mean we should dismiss what's going on. A lot of things change over the course of thousands of years. I, I bet a thousand years from now, people can be like, you're preaching from paper? You know, with all the technological advancements. Let's not dismiss it because it's strange. Abraham knows exactly what God is asking him to do. Abraham cuts the animals into two halves, save the birds, cuts them into two halves, and places them across from each other, creating a place to walk between the two halves. Again, this is strange. I get that. But there's purpose. What is supposed to take place after this is that each party walks in the middle of the halves, which signifies an agreement to the covenant or the contract. Again, this is backstory. In essence, what each person would be saying is that if the covenant is broken by either party, then the other person deserves to die just like the animals. Whatever you think about the process, we do value people keeping his or her word, the value of keeping a covenant promise. Now here is actually the interesting part of the story. It seems the Lord causes Abraham to fall into a deep sleep. Genesis 15, 12. And the only thing that passes through the pieces of these, this, this, these two pieces going down kind of this aisle, the only thing that passes through is a smoking fire with a blazing torch. 
torch. What is this strange fire? It is God who on that day made a covenant with Abraham. It was God's way of saying, you know what, this covenant between you and me, Abraham, it's all on me. It's all on me. God made a promise, and it was up to God to ensure the promise would be kept. As I said, this is the backstory of what Paul is saying in Galatians 3. The promises made to Abraham are completely dependent upon God. Completely dependent upon God. And as we saw in Galatians 3, verses 1 to 14, are received by faith. This is in contrast to the law given to Moses, which requires a mutual agreement. Giving you the law, guys, do you want to agree? Yes or no? Who's signing up? And it requires obedience. Once again, Paul is trying to describe the differences between the promises made to Abraham and the law given to Moses. Paul also points out in verse 17 that precedence takes priority. The law was not given until 430 years after the covenant was made with Abraham. Here it is again in our text. Paul says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, that law does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. You can't just get rid of it. It's still in place. For if the inheritance comes by the law, and this is Paul's theological argument, if it comes by the law, it is no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So, the promises made with Abraham not only came before the law, but these promises are the context for understanding the law. That will help your Old Testament Bible reading. Now, Paul probably anticipated questions. So he tells us the purpose of the law and how the law points to the promise. What is the purpose of the law here? We read about the purpose of the law between verses 19 and 24. Let me just tell you now the purpose of the law, and then we'll see in the text. In light of the fact that God keeps his covenant promises, the law points to the promise revealed in Christ. That's what Paul's going to be getting at here. It is interesting that what could seem to be at opposites, the promises and the law, are actually, in actuality, they actually work together. I touched on this last week, so I don't want to spend too much time on this point again, but I want you to see how Paul advances his argument in this passage. He gives us two ways the law points to the promise. In the first way, the law points to the promise in verse 19. Here's that first half. He just simply asks the question, why then the law? He's making an argument about the preeminence of the promise. Why the law? He says it was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So let's stop for a moment. Paul says the law was given because of transgressions. Paul does not use the Greek word for sin, which does show up in verse 22 of our passage. Instead, he opts for another word translated as transgressions. Why? Here's what Paul is getting at, and I'll illustrate with a story. At the Powers House, we have specific rules or laws, if you will, right? One of them is when the girls are playing outside, 
they cannot go into the gravel road. Even though country life does not receive like the amount of traffic one would get in the suburbs or the city, the law is in place, what? It's obviously to keep them safe, right? If the girls were to go into the gravel road and break the rule, they would be transgressing. A rule is in place, they break it, they're transgressing. It is a specific type of rule breaking that Paul is pointing out, specific type of sin. What Paul is saying is that the rules were put in place to protect Israel. However, as we know, they often transgressed against the law, and their transgressions pointed out that no matter how hard they tried, they would fail to live up to the demands of the law. They broke the rules, therefore Israel deserved judgment. That's been Paul's argument from the beginning of Galatians. But the promise received by faith is how one is made right with God. So this is the first way the law ultimately points to the promise. It reveals our utter inability to be reconciled to God by the law or your works in general. The second way the law points to the promise is found in verses 23 and 24. The text says, Now before faith came, and I take that to mean before Jesus came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So I want to pick up on that word guardian. What does Paul mean there? Paul is suggesting another purpose of the law. The idea of the law being a guardian is like having a, uh, a nanny or a babysitter. Think of it this way. With our understanding of transgression in view, the law acts like a babysitter trying to ensure transgressions do not take place. It would be like Sharice and I having someone over say, hey, can you watch the kids? We're going out on a date. And the babysitter is going to ensure the kids do not go into the road, right? Before Jesus came, the law was a means of protection and care. But the law also revealed Israel's deep problem with sin. The law reveals that Israel could not be made right with God by trying to stay out of the road. They kept going into the road. They kept transgressing. They kept sinning. The law was a babysitter, but the babysitter can be ignored. So while the law was meant as an was it meant to act as a temporary babysitter? It was not sufficient enough to keep them from being judged. There has to be another way. There has to be another way for God's people to be made right with God. And as we saw at the end of Galatians 2, and in the beginning of Galatians 3, being made right with God is not through works of the law, but faith. And it is verse 25 where Paul transitions to this point and I went quickly through verses 15 to 24 for a reason so that I could spend time here. Between verses 25 and 29, Paul tells us the joy of being made right with God through faith. I want to point out three points. First, Paul says we're all sons of God. 
But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Paul uses that word again. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Here, we read about the climax of the gospel. Christians are sons and daughters of God. Let that land on you for a moment. Um, A theologian and pastor, Sinclair Ferguson, highlights this point. He says this, the notion that we are children of God, his own sons and daughters, is the mainspring of Christian living. Our sonship to God is the apex of creation and the goal of redemption. Now, some folks take exception that Paul uses the Greek word for sons and doesn't use words for children, or he doesn't say sons and daughters in verse 26. And those are fine translations. Um, It gets to the sense of what Paul is saying, but I do not want to miss the point why Paul uses the word huias in the Greek, which is sons. Why does Paul use that word? There's a particular reason. Here it is. This is actually quite liberating. In a time and culture when women were often treated as second-class citizens, to speak of a daughter provided no inherent value. In a sense, they were not legally protected property of anyone. We can't imagine that. But that was a reality in the first century. It It would be like a mother giving birth to a daughter at the hospital and then leaving without the birth certificate. Paul uses the Greek word for sons because he wants to show that in God's family, there is equality between sons and daughters. A son and a daughter are equally loved by God. Paul's point is going to be made even more strongly when we look at verse 28. All said, Paul is radical in suggesting that women, daughters, can be heirs of God. He's bringing a radical correction to his culture. It's amazing how much the Bible maps on to our everyday life. I mean, What could be more real than being thought of as a son or daughter? We are all a son or daughter in the biological sense. And whatever your experience growing up in a family, positive, negative, indifferent, it does not compare to being a part of God's family. Here's why. When you are a son or daughter of God, you have a father that will always keep you. You have a father who will not disown you. You have a father who will not push you away. You have a father who rightly brings discipline, not out of laziness or foolishness, but out of love. You have a father who is 100% for you. I'm a father of two girls. I know my failings. My girls have a better father. One who loves them rightly, more purely, 
or honestly. One who's never lazy or foolish or foolish. When I put my girls to bed, I often say, who loves you more than me? And they know the answer. It's their father in heaven. When you are a son or daughter of God, you have a brother in Jesus who will always advocate for you. You have a savior who walks with you. You have a friend who died so that you could be a part of the offspring of Abraham. When you are a son or daughter of God, you have a spiritual family that you're connected to. We have other brothers and sisters in Christ who grow with you. You have other brothers and sisters in Christ who weep with you, sing with you, laugh with you, and always point you to Jesus. Last week I was thinking about community groups and this verse came to mind from Romans 12. So we, though many, let's talk about the church, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually, get this, individually members one of another. Did you catch the last part of that verse? If you are a part of God's family, we are sons and daughters of God with each other. You know, Before I am your pastor, I am your brother, right? I could go on about how familial metaphors emphasize our relationship with God and with each other, but I want to move on to show the other implications for being recipients of this promise that we began to talk about. Let's look at verse 27. It says, for as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We obviously have a reference to to baptism in verse 27. And it is interesting that so far in the book of Galatians, I haven't spoken much about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've spoken a lot about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and all the implications involved with his death. However, baptism is our connection to the resurrection. Here's what I mean. First, baptism in the New Testament and the early church is followed by a person's confession of faith, which means if a person was going to be baptized, he or she needed to understand what was being confessed. The shorthand is this, and I love my Presbyterian friends, babies and little children were not baptized. The other reality is that baptism in the Greek literally means to be immersed underwater. So how does this connect with the resurrection? If you are a recipient of the promise, baptism, being immersed under water, symbolizes a person's death with Christ. Remember when I spoke about Galatians 2.20? How your old man has been nailed to the cross with Jesus? Same idea here. When a person is under the water, the old man is dying with Christ in the grave. And when a person rises from the waters of baptism, it symbolizes newness of life, just like when Jesus walked away from the grave. When a person comes out of the water, they are clothed with Christ. I think the uh, Christian Standard Bible translates this verse better than the ESV. 
for those of you who have been baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. You hear that language? Clothed with Christ. To be clothed with Christ is to take on the righteousness of Christ. To be sure, and as we've seen, it is faith that makes a person righteous. But baptism is a public declaration of what God has done to save formerly condemned sinners and to make he or she right before God. So in another sense, baptism is a declaration that God has kept his promise. He's kept his promise. That's what we declare in part when we baptize. God is faithful. He's kept his promise. Here's one more result of a fulfilled promise. What I already said about being sons and daughters of God is further emphasized um, and a bit diversified in verse 28. Uh, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And to put the bow on all that God has said in his word, here's verse 29. And if you are Christ, if you are Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. If you're looking for a revolutionary passage in the Bible, it's verse 28. It is revolutionary because the promise of God that extends back to Abraham, what does it do? It cuts off cultural barriers, cuts off class barriers, Cuts off gender barriers. Let me just kind of go through each of those one by one. For Paul to say there's neither Jew or Greek, which we have seen time and again in Galatians, is to say that cultural divisions are to have no part in God's church. A person does not need to come from a particular culture in order to be made right with God. Your American culture does not make you superior to any other culture. But we are all one in Christ Jesus. So Paul wants to cut the legs out of any type of superiority that could exist with a particular culture or in a particular church. In the body of Christ, economic and racial class barriers do not extend into the church which is what Paul means when he says there's neither slave nor free. Regarding economic barriers, Timothy Keller says the poor must not be made to feel inferior. The well-off must not be resented. I think that's a good balance. Note how Paul does not dismiss the fact that various economic statuses exist in the church. What he is saying is that in the body of Christ, we are all one in Christ. Now, do you hear the equality in what Paul is saying? Regarding racial class, it should go without saying that the gospel of Jesus eliminates any notion of racism in the church. It should go without saying. However, recent American history and ongoing prejudice in our country and throughout the world means we must state the obvious over and over again. 
in the body of Christ, no matter what color of skin you have, one race is not ever, ever, ever superior to the other, period. To think otherwise is to be in sin. Paul's final class barrier that he wants to eliminate is with men and women. Men and women are equal in the body of Christ. This does not mean men cease to be men and women cease to be women. This does not mean God's design for marriage is thrown out the window. Paul is not saying the way men and women serve in the church cannot be defined. It surely is in the scriptures. What Paul is saying is that before God, a person's equality is found in Christ. And equality is not found in what you do or do not do or, or however the world wants to define it. A person's equality is found in Jesus. Now, I could digress for a moment and tell you how this particular verse and that particular phrase has been taken out of context, abused, and used to push agendas, but to do that would head down a particular rabbit trail into a rabbit hole that we probably couldn't get out of. Um, it'd be another sermon. But just see what Paul's doing here in verse 28. How does that make you feel when you come to church, right? How do you apply that all of a sudden? We're all one in Christ. We all come from different places, different jobs. God's given us different personalities. And yet, despite all the diversity, all the differences, we are sons and daughters of God. We are one in Christ. That is the beauty of the church. I'm going to back up for a moment. That's beautiful. By the power of the Holy Spirit, it works and it works well for the glory of God. Your freedom, your freedom, regardless of how much money is in the bank account, your freedom, no matter what skin color God gave you, your freedom, no matter if you have the Y chromosome or not, your freedom is not found in those distinctions and others. Your freedom is found in Christ. Your freedom was promised. And by faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, your freedom is Christ. It might seem odd to hear this now, but this is where the promise given to Abraham and the law have led us right to Jesus. As we turn the page to Galatians 4, let's not forget how Paul has led us here. It began with a promise, and from the promise there is faith, and from faith there is life because of Christ. There is life found in Christ.